0: Beats, Ryan Types, episode... Seven. 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 Episode seven, wow. You were just listening to a little section of uh, a song called Song for My Father by Madlib from the Shades of Blue release where Madlib, the hip-hop producer, invaded the vaults of the famous Blue Note jazz record label and remixed and live performed a bunch of those tracks. And... Song for my father actually comes from a, a favorite jazz album of mine, the name and the sample of a Horace Silver album that's worth checking out. She dedicated to his father who had some Brazilian ancestry. We're going to spend some time talking about hip-hop music today, one of our favorite musical subjects to discuss. and. Uh, A little bit off topic. Well, the name "Beats" is in the name of our podcast. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We haven't been giving music too much in-depth treatment. So, Aaron had a good idea, which is for us to just kind of rewind and talk about uh, some of our first favorite music, which is uh, rap music. Aaron asked me before the show what my first couple uh, rap albums were, and we were we were sending each other links uh, in our in our G chat window, which we've had open continuously for the past however many years, (laughs) (laughs) ten years probably. So I think that that's a pretty good place to start.
1: Yeah, so what was your first hip-hop album?
0: I got two tapes at the same time, uh, and it must have been 1987 looking back at at the Wikipedia pages for these two albums, and they were uh, Run DMC, Raisin' Hell, and Fat Boy's Crushing. You know, it's funny, like, with memories of when you're a kid, like, you know, the older you get, and brain science says, you know, the more you remember things, the more you end up essentially, like, making up shit about (laughs) things, you know? (laughs) So I I have this whole, like, origin story in my head of how these two tapes ended up in my hands. But even doing the most meager fact-checking suggests that pretty much none of that is true. (laughs) But I do know for a fact that these were the first two tapes that I got. I just am not really sure where they came from. I think my dad had something to do with it. Um, My dad and my brother, some combination of that. I definitely did not go to the store And buy these. They were given to me. I just don't know by exactly whom, so I might have to figure that out later.
1: Were they the actual cassettes, or were they dubs? They were cassettes. They were the
0: actual cassettes, yeah. And my brother was listening to some rap music around that time, but that's really like, you know, some of the first... Very popular rap music that made it outside of you know the areas it was created in. So and they were commercially very successful albums at the time, nineteen eighty seven, and I was seven years old. So yeah, those were my first two. I don't, I, I can't draw any line necessarily between those two albums and like what my tastes in rap music are today. But it's definitely funny to think about. I was spending some time listening to some of the tracks on them pretty hilarious well what about you what were your what were your firsts
1: i'm a little i'm a little younger than mrb actually i think just a year but somehow i think even though i had definitely heard hip-hop going to public school in brooklyn and had been exposed to it a lot i think the first one that really caught on was when i was in like second or third grade and that was in 1989 and it was Bismarcky. Just A Friend, which obviously is a hilarious track, and I still know every single word to it. Like, I can recite to you the entire song, because I think uh, between my friends and I, we just memorized all of it, and I know every single word. And I definitely didn't understand half the words when I memorized it, but... And the other was um, De La Soul, Three Feet, Hide and Rising, specifically for for Me, Myself, and I, which is just like was carried on the air that summer when it came out. Like, I just... I remember very clearly... Yeah. Like, it was, like, almost like you could hear it. It was just, like, every car rolling through Brooklyn, like, was playing that song. And it was just everywhere and the apartment i grew up in with my parents is like directly above the brooklyn bridge basically it's like on the brooklyn bridge expressway that comes in if someone has like a booming system you can hear it very clearly in my apart from my our apartment and that would happen at all times of the day but i very clearly remember like all through that summer like really starting to like have a grasp of, oh this is music and this is happening and cuz around that same time like hip hop was becoming like kind of commercialized commercialized in that they were starting to like use it in commercials <laughs> every McDonald's commercial had like a rap a rap in it and you know like even like the mattress store like had a rap song for their commercial
0: what you were talking about and reminds me of a couple interesting things one is that it was a very obviously was a very different time for like music discovery so you found out about things in different ways like people would give you things or you'd hear them on the radio so that's something maybe we should talk about but another thing is like that i never really experienced until i started spending some time in the city which was you know i used to go into the city a lot with my dad and we talked about that but in terms of like being around in the city on my own. That didn't happen until I was a teenager, 13, 14, and that's the first time that I experienced the phenomenon uh, that's very New York City, which is like literally hearing the same song playing everywhere. There's always only, only been one or two rap radio stations, right? So no matter where you go, that's who that's how the song of like the hip hop song of the summer is decided it's like whichever one you hear and it's usually only one at a time for any given stretch uh, that that's a very real and very funny phenomenon that happens.
1: So when we were looking these up, the other song, I was like thinking about 1989, that summer of 89, and the other song I just sent you to that was coming up was uh Tektronic, Pump It Up. And obviously that's not really like a hip-hop song, but definitely influenced by hip-hop. I remember so clearly standing outside our elementary school. Up until recently, I really thought they were saying in that song, like, get your booty in the porches now. Like, I don't even know what that meant, but like, you know, like, like, I just and I remember repeating, like, I remember all these young girls in my class just singing that song over and over again. And I didn't really know what a booty was. I had to go and ask my mom what a booty was. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I kept, I had to sing the, the, like, get your booty on the
0: porches now. And she was like, what are you, what are you talking about? hip hop taught you what a booty was shout out to my wife Maya she and I have a lot of funny jokes about our respective misrememberings of uh, rap lyrics and like when you're a kid and you hear a word in a song that you don't understand it's either the thing where you just say it and like you just phonetically reproduce the word and don't think about it or if it's real words that you think they're they are you invent this like fake universe where <laughs> your completely made up words make sense in the context of the song you're like oh yeah it must be that like that makes total sense <laughs> and you're just like completely wrong <laughs> i remember trying to look up lyrics in the early days of the internet and that was like some pretty wild wild west stuff for sure because it would just be like people typing out things and no one really knew what any of the lyrics were <laughs> and not that many albums really came with lyric sheets um but some, some did i think the run dmc album did but I yeah all the run, D-
1: run dmc always did and all the public enemy albums did right and stuff like that beastie Boys sometimes pretty rare to get the, the full lyric sheet two years later you know as things progress we were talking about this too. Like, then OPP came out, Naughty by Nature OPP came out, and that, like, let's talk about summer songs. That was, like, the ultimate summer song where, like, literally that, like, ruled that entire summer. That album, I'm pretty sure it came with lyrics, but it also came with, like, a list of all the samples. When the early days when you had, to, everyone had to clear all the samples, the liner notes just filled with every single person. And I remember looking at the liner notes for that album and, like, OPP, and they were like, 40, uh, people credited with the track and I was like, wow, how do, why does it, how does that even work?
0: You know, that was a crucial time, obviously, in the industry. That's like the folk tale that's often told about the Beastie Boys, Paul's Boutique album. Like, if they actually had to pay to clear all the samples on that, then it would have been like a complete nightmare, because uh, they never would have been able to like pay pay back all the royalties that they would have had to pay. <laughs> and Biz Markie was one of the first people that, I don't remember what the song was, he got, yeah, he had, he had to pay it out. That ties into the stuff that I was playing in the beginning, the Mad Lib stuff. It's like, he uh, took it completely free full circle. And after a while of like obsessively producing hip hop music was like, well, so much of this is jazz anyway. Why don't I just like try to play jazz, understand it better by, you know, breaking it down into its constituent parts and examining them. And I think that that is super interesting. First of all, it's an extremely difficult thing to pull off. Well, right. Like anyone can say that or have that idea probably, but to be able to actually like do it, It's pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely have memories of uh, later on hearing songs that were sampled in rap music. And after a while of listening to it, you know, it didn't really take me that much convincing. Like just after a while, I was like, man, these producers are just like, they were on the same level as musicians for me. It was never like a thing where for me that I, I took much convincing to say like, okay, these guys don't actually like play real instruments, but they're composing these songs based on all these other parts i just found that like something about that spoke to me from a pretty young age
1: it's interesting to regard with the with the blue note stuff not only did it come full circle in terms of him like playing his own music going back to jazz roots but blue note as a label like after years and all these jazz labels after years of kind of like not not rejecting hip-hop wholly at all, because there's some great, you know, like, Guru Jazz Mataz, great hip-hop jazz collaboration type stuff, but definitely, like, not really being so fond of the way a lot of things were just taken wholesale, and then for Bluno to come back and be like, hey, hip-hop producer, here, take all of our archives and do something interesting with it, you know, like, reach out to him, and then also, I don't know if you use Spotify, but there's... Blue Note Spotify app, which is pretty interesting, has like a whole like who sampled this thing, where they actually show you what the what the original track is, and then where the sample is to like the to the second on
0: a on a track of all the artists that were been sampled. Now using technology in that uh, interesting way as a label is like. Uh, if you look back at the history of Blue Note as a label, they were kind of always interested in pushing technology. And one of the things that they were known for was producing records of very high quality and took mastering very seriously. And Rudy Van Gelder was someone that like was really interested in capturing the music properly. And a buddy of mine and fellow jazz nut, Dan Melnick, pointed out to me today an interesting thing about the difference between uh, Blue Note as a label and a lot of the other ones at the time, like River side and prestige which was that they would pay musicians to rehearse before the recording sessions which like no other label did it's because they were really wanted the the musician to be able to capture like the sound that was in their heads and they're like well if you're going to put a new band together here's some time pay them to rehearse properly and then come in and record so that was like the difference Uh, that's like real deep you know nerd nerd level stuff but it's an interesting (laughs) thing to think yeah yeah for sure and, and I think both you and I, and this has come up, I think, a bunch of times throughout the episodes we've talked about, pursuing that unified aesthetic is such like a cool thing. You see people, restaurateurs that do it, and there's a flavor of that in what researchers do in computer science and all that kind of stuff, where it's like latching onto one thing that you're trying to achieve and, you know, really going for it. It's really inspiring.
1: So where, from your early tapes, what what was next, like after... After that, when, was it high school? Was it college? When did your love of hip hop get get even deeper?
0: It was something that I listened to kind of all the way through. It was like kind of background music for a long time. Uh, when I was an early teenager uh, is when I first started getting into like underground music locally and doing like punk and hardcore shows and getting into all that kind of stuff and in the background hip-hop like very good hip-hop was very popular then uh so i kind of listened to it it was more like party music that i listened to with my friends for me at that time as opposed to like stuff that i listened to by myself the next big stuff that I liked is definitely the Tribe Called Quest, Beastie Boys, De La Soul, that whole axis in the early 90s, and Public Enemy was another big favorite of mine. I've always liked uh, rap music that, you know, where the rappers really had like a, a message that was just like part of it. It was something that like spoke to me uh, a lot when I was a kid, that was like a thing that I could really understand or would identify with to the extent of my ability to do so. So I liked all, I loved all that rap and I loved all the samples and, you know, I thought it was really funny and it was, it was cool to be around and collecting those tapes and stuff when those people were making, were ma- those guys were making that music. What What about you? What, what was next?
1: For me? Yeah. Tribe Called Quest was probably, I mean, BC Boys for sure almost instantly, like I got Paul's Boutique and that kind of blew my mind and i think afterwards on route down they shout out like the train station that was next to my parents house they oh, go yeah. every, every morning took the train from the high street station i was like oh my god this is like this is <laughs> i like i wanted that like printed on a t-shirt that was like my you know i was like this is where i'm from this is my music At, from there like yeah going to beastie boys concert was one of my first concerts that i ever went to i was still into like rock music too but eventually like towards the end of high school like i just started getting into this idea that oh maybe i could like make hip-hop music too like the pc like home music production got far enough that you know maybe i could like bootleg some software in in order to make some beats at home obviously i couldn't like afford an npc when i was a 17 year old but i could like get free loops and Acid, which was like an amazing piece of music software. I also bought a turntable with the money that I earned being a camp counselor over a summer. I bought a mixer on eBay and one of my very early eBay purchases. And the mixer had a built-in sampler. It was the shittiest, funniest thing ever. It it literally it had like an eight-second sampler. You could sample one thing, right? And then you could change the pitch of the sample and then loop it. But like it wouldn't really keep the pitch. So you like you'd sample like a drum loop. It would just be like, boop, boop, boop. And then it would like the second loop, it would, it would slow down and just be like, boop, 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 boop. So like I would have my friends come over and rap over it and record stuff. But it was kind of impossible <laughs> to rap over because it was just so crappy. And then, yeah, once, once the computer stuff got a little more sophisticated, I started making beats and... You know, met some friends in high school and early days of college and got more and more and more into that and started doing shows and stuff like that. New York at that time in like the late 90s, it was awesome. Like there was just so much going on hip-hop was everywhere fat beats was still around and like you could just hang out there and meet people like meet actual rappers i mean you were in nyu around that same time too so it's like you know exactly what i'm talking about there were just people around everywhere underground hip-hop was literally like they were in your backyard lp was hanging out in my neighborhood because he just would go into the game stop where my friend worked all the time like on court street <laughs> You would go to Fat Beats, and Talib Kweli would be there. Everyone was just around, just being around it. You felt like you were part of something, and that was like super powerful for me. And I'll, I'll never regret or forget that time.
0: Yeah, I remember one day outside of Fat Beats, uh, like Lord Finesse, like harassing me and my friends to buy his <laughs> like new CDR. And I was like, wow, that's pretty intense. And yeah, you used to see a lot of people... I mean, the Company Flow stuff definitely blew my mind. I was living around the corner from Fat Beats in my first NYU dorm when that came out. And it was just like, I couldn't... It was like you didn't know what kind of future the music had because uh, there was all the cool... There was all the stuff that you loved like from middle school and high school and then all of this like kind of crappy commercial stuff. And then... There was kind of like a brief beat in between that and like the next wave of really fierce and awesome underground uh, hip hop in New York. And that was a cool time. Like it was a pretty good time to see live hip hop, too. I definitely saw all those guys play and the roots do a bunch of shows and yeah i mean the, and there was stuff on the west coast at that time and you know hieroglyphics crew stuff and there was just a lot of really great music at that time and it was i, I feel blessed to have lived through like all that stuff being actually created because it was cool it was cool to it like, was awesome be there yeah
1: the summer of 1999 i think it was i Like right before I I was between my junior and senior year of high school, I was so into it. There was just so much going on that summer. I stayed at home. I didn't go to, I didn't do anything. I just hung out and made music and went to shows like nonstop. Every other day there was something going on. In one week, there was like a summer stage show where The Roots played, and then also later that week, Mostef did a show at uh, Hunter College, and then there was like a benefit concert with Dead Prez, and all this stuff happened in like a single week. And I remember being like, oh man, this is like the best summer to be in New York City ever. Um, I'm just smiling thinking about that time.
0: Yeah, definitely. It was uh it it definitely was full of full of possibility. It was it was cool to see that. I mean, that was like being able to go and see live shows was kind of the next step in understanding like the music better because that's like obviously there's like a, such a live element to the history of that kind of music i mean that's a that's a great thing about like finally growing up and getting out of your parents house for a little <laughs> while is that you see getting to see those scenes it's just all a bunch of people like getting together to make it possible is really cool because when you just listen to the music on its own uh, you get really divorced from like how it's actually produced I don't know if everyone knows about AQ's uh, secret history of <laughs> production, but have it, having some, you know, having to make do with whatever equipment you have laying around, you know, that's that's how most people ended up making, you know, the stuff that they found interest. That's what becomes people's sound. Like fa- famous famous samplers, like SP twelve hundred or whatever, have like a sound because. That's just the like random compression, the, com- the compression algorithm that the engineer designed impacted like how, how all of how every Pete Rock sounding. set, every Pete Rock track ever sound because Dilla and all that stuff. Shout out to Dilla, too, of course. This is actually a point I wanted to talk about because I didn't get into the I didn't get into the Dilla stuff like listening to him as a producer until much later. But he definitely has, uh, he definitely created some of my favorite beats. And uh, Donuts is definitely like one of my all-time favorite albums in any genre. So if you haven't listened to that, you should definitely check it out. And if you haven't listened to it yet, because uh, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who just heard it for the first time. And I was like, man, I'm jealous. I wish I had fresh ears <laughs> to could hear that over again. Right? Yeah. Which is a good way to be. If you know, like, you know, you should never, never hold it over someone else's head that they haven't heard the thing that you've heard yet. Just just tell them that you're jealous and you wish you could hear it again for the first time. <laughs> and that makes people a lot more willing to, uh, like, have open discourse about music and things that involve taste. right? Because that could be a hard thing to do. Yeah, is the man. He, there's a, there's a, some good footage of him in that Stone's Throw documentary, which is another awesome label. And a, I think everyone should go see that movie. It's really good. Our vinyl our vinyl weighs a ton, The Stones Throw, which is a L.A.-based label. Um, there is a documentary that came out about it. I don't know, I think it's only like a year old or so. And there's a lot of really good footage about, like they have actual footage of the first time that Mad Lib and uh, Dilla met in person. And it's pretty amazing because they were both like big nerds for each other's music. They both had the idea that they were kind of creating music that only the other one would understand that, you know, it was like good as rap music, but like all the little things that they put into it, it's like the producers speaking to each other through their music. So they ended up hanging out a bunch and making, making J-Lib and whatever together. So that was cool.
1: I wonder what our children are going to think of this music. I mean, like both of us obviously play this music all the time in our houses and they'll grow up hearing, like I grew up listening to the Loving Spoonful and, like, the Beatles and all this folk music, because that's what my parents, my mom, specifically, like, grew up with and listened to and just had all those records in the house and played them all the time. And so now I'm just thinking, like, this is just, I didn't, you know, I grew up with this music, but I didn't, it wasn't, like, part of my early childhood. I won't, like, hear the intro to Donuts in in my head over and over again just because I heard it throughout you know, my early adulthood.
0: Yeah. I've, I've tried to consider that before. I don't, I don't, I, I don't want to ruin them for all of that music by like playing it too much. But on the other hand, I, I can't help myself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, I think something happened where like, yeah, the underground in the commercial kind of merged for a little bit and there's still good music for sure being produced. I don't, I, I'm not going to, be that guy who says hip-hop is dead like every rapper in 2004 there's still a lot of great music out there but it's a little fewer and far between i think the internet and the wide availability of music changed a lot of how people listen to it and there's not as much like locality around it as there was in those days when people were a little more isolated and had to create their own sound now it's like you can listen to anyone anytime you know it's not it's not quite the same
0: thing it's It's important to obviously not be like the the old person about it and and shake your stick and whatever, <laughs> tell people tell people to get off your lawn or whatever. But I'm still constantly surprised by what people are able to produce like within the various frameworks of any genre of music that uh, I appreciate and it's cool to. I mean, I, I have said that before. Um, you know, I didn't like any rap music made after 1999 or whatever, but going back and listening to it, there's actually a lot. it's 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 kind of like that false memory thing that I was talking about before, right? Like you just you put so much stock in them in the stuff you came up on that you forget that like there actually has been a lot of interesting stuff happening. The whole time, and I think that there's still, there's still, there's still cool shit happening today, and that's cool to uh, see how it changes. I mean, it's funny. Like, I don't personally understand or know like how music discovery and whatever works now, but that's okay because I'm not really the audience for any of that <laughs> stuff anyway. So it doesn't really matter. I have my own. I have my own ways of going about things. I try to be I try to be open-minded, but I think you're I think you're much more exploratory than I am about like new things. It takes me a while to like p- click the play button on something I've never heard heard of before, but whenever I do, I'm usually pretty I'm usually pretty uh happy that I've done that. How do you stay excited to like check out new things like what, what what compels you to do that I'm,
1: I just have a compulsion that I'm constantly wanting to l- I, I don't like this the same thing over and over again at some point
0: I don't know it's funny I probably get like self-conscious about like not knowing you know what's cool and what's not cool so it just mm-hmm. makes me like want to just listen to a bunch of old music but I do, <laughs> uh, I definitely like getting recommendations from people and checking out and learning about new stuff it's really fun so on that note, thanks a lot for tuning in. We appreciate everyone's feedback. Hit us up. We're going to get a, to get a Google voicemail number set up one of these days so we can record your shout-outs. I keep forgetting to do that. But until then, tweet at us at BeatsRideTypes. Uh, shoot us an email. Um, send us a postcard. We should get a P.O. Box, too. I want to get postcards. Maybe we'll send some postcards. <laughs> All right. Peace. Peace.